0: There are some short-term, long-term things I think that we should do to bolster the cybersecurity around the election process.
1: Oh, well. Take your time, Mr. Secretary. All the time you need. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight I got the feeling that something right
2: Nope.
1: I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair And I'm wondering how i get down the stairs Clowns to the left me us to the right here i am stuck in the middle with you i am yes i'm stuck in the middle from pacifica with radio in los angeles this is the broadcast as heard on kpfk 90.7 fm people powered radio in la in oregon on 91.7 fm kyaq on the central coast and 106.7 fm queso in cottage grove 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. WGRN 94.1 FM in Columbus, Ohio, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And yes, coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices channel on Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. This is the Bradcast, your democracy headquarters. I am Brad Friedman. Your friendly, investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us once again for another thrilling, action-packed adventure. Uh, With both of the major party political conventions now out of the way this week, uh, we've been able to move quite a bit from horse race coverage back Mercifully to uh, coverage of the track conditions, the often very muddy track conditions that this year's horses are once again running on. Earlier earlier in the week, we, uh, we covered quite a bit of very good news concerning voting rights rulings uh, from courts, federal and state courts all over the country, clearing the way for voters in a bunch of states, including a number of swing states, to cast their ballots without uh, purposeful blockades and restrictions that have been put in place by, frankly, Republican lawmakers around the country after the gutting of the Voting Rights Act by the Supreme Court back in 2013. Uh, We've also had time to explore the concerns finally heard by a bunch of folks, uh, or from, I should say, a, a bunch of folks in the corporate mainstream media this week. Concerns about insecure, hackable, easily manipulated by insiders, election systems, That on the heels of both the recent uh, hack of DNC emails and claims by both Republicans like Donald Trump in his camp, as well as by Democrats, some supporters of Bernie Sanders, that recent elections, be it uh, the Democratic primary or the upcoming November general election, have been or will be manipulated by bad actors. Foreign and/or domestic, I should add. Now, I covered the uh, concerns and allegations in great detail um, from some of those Sanders supporters on yesterday's broadcast, including a new report from Election Justice USA, charging election fraud had benefited Hillary Clinton during the primary. Now, suffice to say, I was critical of a lot of what is in their report, but I'm happy to see folks concerned about election results. Uh, which are almost never overseen and often not even overseeable by the public. Rather, they uh, are tabulated by computers, both touchscreen votes and paper ballot votes, which people need to understand. That happens in virtually every town and county in the country. So if you missed that show on on some of those specifics, uh, please download it from bradblog.com. A lot of information in yesterday's program. But whether this year's elections have been or will be manipulated or not, the threat to our elections has been clear for years. Back in 2006, by way of just one example, after I was able to help Princeton University get a Diebold touchscreen voting system for the first independent tests of such a machine, they found that they were able to hack it in about 60 seconds time with a virus that would flip the election results, pass itself from machine to machine uh, with virtually no possibility of detection. That followed on an exclusive series of reports that I did from a Diebold insider who I called Deep Throat at the time, who described how the company's lead programmers admitted that the security on their systems is, let's say, uh, terrible. Uh, as long as uh, as long ago as 2009, uh, by way of another example, we reported at Bradblog.com on remarks delivered by CIA cybersecurity analyst Stephen Stigall to the U.S. Elections Assistance Commission, describing how, quote, "Wherever the vote becomes an electron and touches a computer, that's an opportunity for a malicious actor potentially to make bad things happen." Stegall went on to note that the CIA got interested in electronic systems a few uh, several years uh, prior to that after concluding that foreign actors, foreigners might try to hack U.S. election systems. Well, now suddenly, not only does the U.S. government seem to be indicating publicly that cybersecurity of election systems is a very real concern, but this week, the Obama administration, in the form of Jay Johnson, Secretary of uh, Department of Homeland Security, at an event on cybersecurity hosted by the Christian Science Monitor, he was asked about both the, the hack of DNC emails allegedly by Russian intelligence agencies, according to Democrats, and about the threat that it suggests for our nation's election systems. He spoke about measures that the department is considering taking to protect the nation's electronic voting systems.
0: As everybody knows, the FBI is investigating the DNC hack. We are not at this point prepared to attribute it to a particular actor or actors. That investigation continues. On the election process, we are actively thinking about election cybersecurity right now. Now, the issue with the election process is, as you know, there's no one federal election system. There are some 9,000 jurisdictions across this country involved in the election process. So when there's a national election for president, there are some 9,000 jurisdictions that participate and contribute to collecting votes, tallying votes, and reporting votes. States, cities, counties who all have their own way of doing business down to the nature of the ballots, the nature of how votes are collected and tabulated. And so after the 2000 election, Congress passed HAVA and there was a commission created by, by HAVA that was dedicated at the national level to the security around the election processes across the country. That commission actually, I think, did a lot of good and raised the bar quite significantly, but there is more to do. Um, The nature of cyber threats has evolved since 2002, since 2003. And so I do think that we should carefully consider whether our election system, our election process, um, is critical infrastructure, um, like the financial sector, like the power grid. Um, the election process contributes to, is a, is a, there is a vital national interest in our election process. So I do think we need to consider whether it should be considered by my department and others critical infrastructure. Uh, which has several implications. It it becomes very much part of our focus. There are some short-term, long-term things, I think, that we should do to bolster the cybersecurity around the election process. Um, I am considering communicating with election officials across the country about best practices in the short term There are some best practices that exist, and I think we need to share those best practices with state and local election officials soon. And then I think that there are probably longer-term investments we need to make in in the cybersecurity of our election process. I think that there are various different points in the process that we have to be concerned about. Um, So this is something that we're very focused on right at the moment.
1: Well, no rush, uh, Director Johnson. That was uh, Jay Johnson, the uh, D- Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, being asked about cybersecurity in elections uh, at a uh, at a breakfast this week in the wake of uh, hacks at the uh, DNC and and elsewhere. Uh, writing about this entire fine mess at the Christian Science Monitor this week, uh, and about what the U.S. actually could do about it, both now and in coming years. Is Scott Shackelford. He's a senior fellow at the Center for Applied Cybersecurity Research and an associate professor of business law and ethics at Indiana University, where he teaches cybersecurity law and policy. He's also a cybersecurity research fellow at Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center, a national fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, and the author of Managing Cyber Attacks in International Law, Business and Relations in Search of Cyber Peace. Good luck with that. This week, uh, writing at the Christian Science Monitor, Scott authored an op-ed headlined, How to Make Democracy Harder to Hack. Good luck with that, too. Scott Shackelford, welcome, sir, to the broadcast.
2: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Really appreciate uh, your piece this week and you're joining us. All right, uh, before we get into some of the details of your piece, what does the U.S. government's designation, you heard Jay Johnson uh, mention it uh, in the opening there, what does his designation uh, of election systems as critical infrastructure, what does that actually mean on a practical and political level, and uh, does uh, Secretary Johnson's remarks there indicate that this uh, new definition is now formal and final? Or is there an actual process the government has to go through first?
2: Yeah, both good questions. Uh, critical infrastructure is really in the eye of the beholder. What's critical, right? What's critical to you uh, might be something very different than what's critical to somebody else. For example, there's uh, an old analogy, if you're a diabetic, well, you better believe insulin pumps are pretty critical. So maybe not to somebody who doesn't suffer from that particular disease. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., we have 16 different critical infrastructure sectors that the Department of Homeland Security has designated over the years. So they run the gambit, some examples of which you already mentioned, things like the electric grid, telecom, finance. Um, but beyond that, the question is going to be in this case whether we need to drill down on some more specifics, things like voting machines and kind of the, the democratic machinery underpinning our election cycles. Mm-hmm. We don't really do that. The DHS hasn't yet. There is one sector called government facilities that elections and voting machines could conceivably fit under, but that would require basically President Obama and the administration, uh, Mm rejiggering for something called the Presidential Decision Directive 21. That would basically mean designating one federal lead agency to serve as a liaison with the election officials and offer them kind of a range of assistance, including the cybersecurity best practices that Secretary Johnson referred to in the clip Mm. that you played. So practically, this could do something. It could help, at least if nothing else, it would shine a harsh light that this is something we as the U.S. really care about, in terms of what practical effects that might have that remains to be seen It's it's not the case that for example congress has more say in regulating critical infrastructure than we do other segments of the economy so Mm -hmm. far that's been bandied about in different bills that have been debated before congress but never actually enacted it would mean though that Organizations like NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, in collaboration with industry, mm-hmm. uh, voting machine manufacturers, could start to establish and lay out what counts as best practices and establish that standard of care, at least domestically. Uh,
1: Scott, I'm I'm often uh, I've I've covered this as I mentioned in the uh, intro here for years and I, I more than a decade. I was also a computer programmer prior to uh, you know being a journalist at uh, at Bradblog.com and a radio host. Here, but uh, I have often been called a conspiracy theorist for simply, e- and I still am today. By the way, go read uh, Daily Coast comments from yesterday's program for uh, conspiracy theorists for for even reporting on this stuff. And I don't want to go into the details, but just as a cybersecurity expert here. Um, <laughs> is this the stuff of conspiracy theories? Does it even take a conspiracy to be able to uh, manipulate our elections, either by an outside hacker or, uh, or an insider? Knowing a little bit about how these systems work, what are your thoughts on that, Scott?
2: Absolutely, well... There's a bit of a spectrum here, right? So I think it's important to kind of put this problem in perspective, especially mm-hmm. now that we have a bit of a ticking clock with this cycle coming up in less than 100 days. Um, the good news is across the country is that 75% or so of the ballots that will probably be cast this November are going to be paper ballots, right? So there's only five states, uh, Delaware, Georgia, Louisiana, South Carolina, and New Jersey that use what are called direct electronic or direct recording electronic machines, or DREs, basically. So these are the machines that don't have those paper ballot backups, which make it really difficult to conduct any type of post-election audit to make sure that their results are entirely free and clear and not fraudulent. Um, The bad news is, is that you know, there's a couple of states, uh, in particular, the dozen or so states that don't have any auto procedure at all Mm -hmm. that makes it a little bit more easy than we would like to see to you know have this type of tampering crop up, whether it's a widespread conspiracy or just kind of a few um, either hacktivists or Mm -hmm. criminals trying to influence local results even for their own benefit. Um, As far as the big swing states, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida. They have their situation in a little bit of a better position than some of the uh, other, uh, especially even some other bordering states. Um, But, unfortunately, even among these kind of swing state categories, there's a couple of states that do need, ideally, to get their act together a little bit more. So Virginia is one example. Um, there is not a lot of post-election auditing required in Virginia. And if you're, if any of your listeners are curious, there's a great website called verifiedvoting.org that's compiled a lot of this information. We, um, but there are some signs even in Virginia that they're starting to see this problem. So they, for example, in the state decertified thousands of insecure, what are called win-vote machines. Yep. Ah, uh, there was one analyst that pretty much said anybody within a half a mile of these machines could have modified every vote on them undetected without any technical expertise.
1: And we should—I'll um, jump in just to note that uh, we, we've had the Pam Smith, the president Verified Voting, on here many times on on the program. Uh, we talked about that, uh, what there was discovered in Virginia, but I, I also want to uh, note, uh, Scott Shackelford, that it's uh, even in the states with paper ballots those systems those paper ballots are counted by computers that are rarely checked for accuracy by anyone and and that includes even in the the very few states that do limited post election spot checks or audits, uh, and it would also, you know, uh, allows uh, errors to come into the system or uh, insiders, uh, you know, have access. They don't even need to hack these systems. Uh, They have direct access. So that's a a continuing concern. But I've long, when you talk about that ticking clock, Scott, I've long argued that, you know, just before an election like this is not the time to deal with these issues, uh, they got to be dealt with, you know, all year round. We deal with them all year round, but it seems like the media and the, the politicians, they do not. Uh, are the measures that uh, Secretary Johnson referred to there in his remarks, is that a, 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 a little, you know, a bit too little, too late, or closing the barn door after the horse has already left, or whatever metaphor you like at this point, at least in regard to the upcoming elections? Is there anything that can be done by the, the Department of Homeland Security?
2: Right yeah I think I think unfortunately it might be it might it well it definitely is I think too late at this point uh, to wake up and get you know all 9000 Jurisdictions on board for November. uh, That would be that'd be fantastic. But as you said, that would have taken a a pretty big effort. So maybe instead of focusing quite so much, you know, driver's licenses and making sure that we have different IDs, in some Mm -hmm. of these states, it would have been great to put that focus a little bit more on on cybersecurity. But Mm -hmm. that didn't happen. Nope. Uh, So the good news is, though, there is some low hanging fruit out there. So, for example. You know, making sure that some of these machines don't do really simple things like run Microsoft XP, which some still do, even though there's been no security patches that a have lot. been a offered lot. for Microsoft since April 2014. A lot. That
1: lot help. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, but a lot a lot of these machines still do. And you can't That's, go yeah. in and change these machines, you know, 90 days out from the election.
2: No, that's it. That's it. And and there's 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 no unfortunately a technological silver bullet here. I mean we can put out lists of best practices all we want, um, but until we actually have some regulatory teeth and a bit of a uh runway to do something with that, uh it's 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 not gonna be the case where we're gonna have one hundred percent uh clarity and one hundred percent trust in these systems. I think, you know, because we have such limited time, it does make the most sense to put the greatest emphasis on those areas where we think Either the margins could be close, especially where theres could be close margins coupled with kind of the least auditing available mm-hmm. um, that 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 could help so if legislators in these states like Virginia, like Pennsylvania really do want to make some difference it 's possible if there was enough political will with the money to back it up to materialize, we could potentially do something in the next few months That's- you know it 's a bit easier when there 's you know, an outlier, like if, if somehow a big state that we didn't see coming at all got switched, that's a bit of a red herring. But in these states with close margins, that, that's another story.
1: That That is a big if. I mean, you write in your piece, The Christian Science Monitor, uh, Scott Shackelford, uh, you, you write about, quote, "...a long hi- international history of attacks on voting machines and databases going back as far as 1994 in South Africa." When Nelson Mandela's victory was initially diluted because of fraud, uh, you know, not only I guess one of my questions here is what has been the holdup? A and B, you know, we continue to hear calls uh, for internet voting, uh, and you know, indeed, we're we're using it for military and overseas voting, and now Alaska this year, there I believe they're allowing it for any and all voters, as I understand. I, I, I'm afraid we've known about a lot of this stuff we don't take it seriously we haven't taken it seriously and I'm not altogether clear why it hasn't been taken seriously do you have any thoughts on that
2: absolutely I mean this is you're right especially the debate about online voting that's one that's happening around the world Um, Estonia for example so this is one of the most wired nations in the world and even as far back as 2007 they were using online voting. Um, in fact, in their last big election cycle in 2013, 25 percent of the ballots cast were online. Um, and there was a report actually that was put out just this last mm-hmm. uh, year, about a year and a half ago now, talking about how incredibly, unfortunately, insecure yep. that system is. Uh, and so this is there hasn't been, especially an online voting uh, system created yet that is not hackable, right? Um, there's some ideas out there, uh, including blockchains and otherwise, the things you could do to make this a little bit more uh, possible, but I think so far at least we've seen that type of voting and even e-voting generally peak a bit in the U.S. and going, we're going back, it seems, more in the direction of paper balance. We'd rather deal with the hanging chads than... Um, fraud at the level that we're contemplating in this conversation.
1: Well, we can Why? we can see hanging ahead, yeah. chads. No, I, we can see hanging chads. We can oversee paper ballots. That's we it. can't oversee electrons as uh, as that uh, CIA uh, analyst I, I quoted said earlier. But go ahead, I cut you off. I didn't mean to.
2: Oh no, that's no problem. No, hanging chads make far better uh, Halloween costumes than <laughs> random electrons flying through the air. You're absolutely right. Um and yeah, that's that's the thing, is I think in the, in the reaction to the 2000 election and the, the, you know, really well-found desire to make sure that nothing like that was to happen again, we, we made this big push to go toward technology, but we didn't think about all the technological, the cybersecurity best practices. You have to bake into these systems from the start rather than trying to bolt them on after the fact mm-hmm. at the last minute, which is in the position that unfortunately we're in now.
1: I got, and I got to tell you, I'm worried when I hear the calls for new systems. We've heard it from you know places like Brennan Center and so forth. Who I, who I rather like what their work, but they're also calling for uh, new computers with many of the same problems uh, as the old computers. I, I, but I don't want to let's let's not get into that for the moment because you had in your report a couple of. Let's call them diplomatic solutions uh, to some extent, or at least mitigation potential uh, mitigation procedures uh, that you wrote about. I want to I want to hit those. Uh, you write about the the G two cybersecurity code of conduct between the U S. and China, and how something like that could be applied here now. And that sets aside you know changing voting systems and so forth that's more of a diplomatic outreach uh, explain what that is and you you know you mentioned a couple of these agreements here but let's start with the G2 cybersecurity code of conduct what does that mean and how could that be applied here
2: so this was kind of one of the first uh salvos and what became 2015 the really the year of cybersecurity norms and norms are basically just rules of the road so these are uh i practices that countries agree to uh to mm-hmm. live by now the reason we've seen these types of norms crop up is because it's pretty difficult to actually craft new treaties or new international law in this space there's been agreements to apply um, international law to cyberspace but so far as crafting new treaties new accords it's tough politically and um, it's tough even through a matter of whether we actually would want to do this if we could so for example it's easier to do things like uh, you know limit the proliferation of chemical or biological weapons you can at least have some information about where those are where they're being produced what are requires to produce these types of weapons whereas you know code um that's out of the box right I mean mm-hmm. this every uh, the technological know how to do that is already widely diffused, so those kind of non proliferation models don't work so that's why there's been so much of an emphasis on norm building measures and there has been a lot of progress um even in the last year and a half on this front so you you rightly mentioned the g two which mm-hmm. is the u s and China. Uh, so President Obama, President Xi decided this last year, and all of this hasn't been made um, public, so we're kind of limited in what we can talk about in terms of what little snippets that these two countries have decided to actually talk about. But one of the big, p- biggest pieces of this particular agreement was the uh, mutual agreement not to focus on uh, corrupting and uh, stealing one another's intellectual property, particularly trade secrets and to come to the assistance of uh, one another, even, and other countries when they become the victims of different kinds of cyber attacks. Mm -hmm. This agreement in particular actually didn't discuss critical infrastructure in any detail, though other uh, agreements that we might get to have, like coming from the G7 and the G20. uh, So it might be possible to leverage some of that to talk about, in particular, and focus on elections Mm -hmm. and safeguarding uh, voting machines, that kind of thing. So so we could um, so take... This,
1: yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead.
2: Go ahead. No, I'm sorry.
1: Well, I, I was going to... Because you also cite, for example, the 2015 UN Group of Governmental Experts consensus report, language about critical infrastructure, and suggesting that that, too, mm-hmm. could be expanded... To explicitly include uh, elections, that that is uh, the, the you write this critical infrastructure norm to which many of the cyber powers, including Russia, have already agreed could be leveraged to explicitly include elections. So you're talking here about. International agreements where we basically say, uh, "Hey, there's a lot of things we may do out there in cyberspace. There's a lot of things we may do to spy on each other, but certain things are off limit, uh, like critical infrastructure, like power grid, and critical infrastructure like election systems. On that, we should be hands off and and agree to that. Is, is that sort of where you're going with the with with these thoughts?
2: Yeah, that's it. That's that's basically the idea. Um, countries have really tried to, so far at least, up until 2015, safeguard their freedom of movement online. Mm -hmm. There was a lot to be gained through things like cyber espionage campaigns. We still see those, of course, going on. But we're starting to see the beginnings of this realization that, you know what, it's in all of our best interest to limit this freedom of movement at least a little bit to allow these kind of rules of the road to be a little more diffused. Now, verifying and forcing these norms is another matter, but the fact that we've seen, for example, the G20, which has a lot of major cyberpowers, including some antagonistic ones mm-hmm. uh, to the U.S., Come along and agree to some of these statements. Things like safeguarding critical infrastructure, that's really a watershed. We haven't seen that happen on the international stage before. And I think there's an opportunity here to really leverage that and focus it in this case, in the uh, kind of elections and voting machinery case, to make sure that these types of things aren't permitted. Just like, as you said, we wouldn't permit. Uh, logic bombs or different types of cyber attacks on our power grid. We shouldn't allow for that kind of corruption in democratic processes either. But
1: uh, have we given up our sort of our moral high ground, uh, Scott Shackelford, here in the U.S.? Uh, You know, we've had, for example, uh, revelations in recent years that we've been hacking into our own allies, you know, the cell phone of of, uh, German President Angela Merkel and so forth. Have we given up the high? I know a lot of people are upset now that they feel that, oh, it's Russia is coming in and affecting our elections. But, you know, the U.S. has been, uh, you know, pushing coups for decades all over the all over the world. More recently, as I say, we've been found to be spying on even our friends. Do we have the moral high ground to to say to, frankly, whether it's anyone, Russia or China and Diplomatic agreements, by the way, would probably not even apply to bad actors like ISIS and, you know, and so forth. Do we even have the the moral high ground anymore to uh, to to affect real change on these issues or or is this kind of, uh, you know, as they call it, national security theater to some to some respect?
2: It's 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 difficult to say i think there's a lot to be said for having if not the moral high ground then at least a first mover advantage that's to say that when there's a bit of a void when there aren't practices established yet if you mm-hmm. can come in and say this is how we think things should work and this is why and even putting aside other issues if that rationale is compelling um then that can that can actually come a long way in a space like cyber and for what it's worth, the Obama administration started that process way back in 2011 with something they did called the International Strategy for Cyberspace, which was one of the first major efforts to strategize about how the U.S., working with our partners and allies around the world, should approach the topic of cybersecurity. Um, and really, what we've been seeing since then is backfilling really that document to try to give some flesh to those bones, to unpack what things like you know cybersecurity due diligence really mean. And I think at this point, what might be really helpful is now that we've seen all this diplomatic progress with at least, you know, the G20, not only do we need to drill down on specifics on things like machinery, but we need to widen the tent a little bit. So, for example, Microsoft came out with their own list of cybersecurity norms uh, back in 2014. And there's been some efforts and some thought about, hey, maybe we need to do a G20 plus ICT20, so basically get together the top um, uh, tech companies, Mm -hmm. the top uh, countries in terms of either largest economies, most wired, whatever designation you want to use, and start to break down some of those barriers and maybe rebuild some of that trust between the public and private sectors. That's a tall order, but it could be um, helpful with moving the ball forward a little bit here. Yeah,
1: la- last thought here from you, uh, Scott. I- I'm I'm trying to, you know, I'm often critical. I-, I tell people, you know, do not be. It's good to be skeptical, but not to be cynical. And so I'm trying to not be cynical here. But I got to tell you. I, I hear all of this in the you know on the eve of uh, of another presidential election and I got to wonder if they are really serious this time and the reason I ask you know I can go back At bradblog.com back in 2007, uh, we reported on on the secret investigation of Sequoia Voting Systems. You may remember that voting system company uh, by CFIUS, which is the committee, the U.S. Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. There were concerns at the time about the company. Concerns were largely from the right, but also from some Democrats about Sequoia's parent company. Now, Sequoia makes or used to make voting machines that were used all over the country. Their parent company was called Smartmatic. They were alleged to have ties to Hugo Chavez. This led Republicans to be worried about you know, oh, Hugo Chavez is controlling our elections. So they did an investigation. The company was eventually sold, but now it's in the hands of a Canadian company. So we still have foreign powers, uh, you know, controlling a lot of our uh, electoral machinery. And that was back in 2007. Uh, recently, over at The Intercept, uh, uh, Jenny McLaughlin reported that foreign intelligence services targeted 2008 campaigns. Uh, officials were warned. About it, so this has been going on for a while, and it seems that little has changed. Uh, begging the question: Do officials really actually care about this? Uh, you know, and and I don't know why do they suddenly act like they care right before the election? Do you have confidence that they really mean it this time? Let, let me put it that way.
2: Well, you know, you're, you're talking to the cyber peace guy, right? So I try to be a bit optimistic. I I, I share your, uh, your your concerns there, though. It's kind of a hope for the best, plan for the worst scenario. Uh, you know, it, it's I, I, I can't speak for public officials, kind of across this country, to say nothing of around the world. I, I think you know elections do do quite a bit to focus minds, and it is unfortunate that we lose some of that focus in the aftermath of these mm-hmm. elections. And I think one of the biggest things we can we can think about right now is if we can use this uh, now pretty widespread concern from the Obama administration on down, as is being reported, and really use that to, uh, to focus minds not only of um, the feds, but also all of these state legislators across the country that could really do a lot to help make sure whatever goes down in 2016 does not happen again in 2020 or 2024. Um, and I think one of the best ways to do that is by, you know, taking this, a uh, multi-level approach, right? Which is also another word for it is a polycentric approach. That's like a really multiple centers uh, of of authority and power coming together around one area. In this case, making sure that our voting is uh, is is trustworthy and authenticated. I think if you if you if you do all of this at the same time, if you focus on the states, if you also include the private sector, if you continue building out these cyber norms. It's not going to be the case where we have 100% confidence in every single um, election uh, or every single jurisdiction from here out to the horizon. But I think we can do what we do in all these other contexts when we talk about cybersecurity, and that's mitigate risk, right? Build trust, and. Even though there's no perfect way to do that, there's a lot of really common-sense approaches, some of which we've talked about already. Uh, so making sure that it's tougher to infect these machines, even these vote-counting machines with malware, mm-hmm. making sure that they're encrypted, right, making sure that they're air-gapped, which means they're unplugged from the public Internet to the mm-hmm. extent possible, right? Those kind of things can uh, really, really do a lot to make sure... That uh, we have, we we have trust in the outcome. Well, ma- that's obviously the bedrock principle of our of our democracy.
1: Maybe we will do them someday, hoping for the best, <laughs> planning for the worst. Scott Shackelford uh, of uh, University of uh, Indiana University, uh, the author of uh, the op-ed headlined "How to Make Democracy Harder to Hack" at the Christian Science Monitor this week. Check it out at csmonitor.com. Uh, Scott, great to have you here. Hope to uh, do it again in the future. Really. appreciate appreciate your time
2: thank you so much
1: have a great day you bet you too all right a quick break and we're back with more Broadcast right after this i'm brad friedman stay tuned <laughs> back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. This week is the 51st anniversary of the federal voting rights, the U.S. F- federal Voting Rights Act. Signed by Lyndon Johnson uh, We'll get to uh, one point on that In a moment uh, I want to say uh, Welcome back to the broadcast Brad Friedman from bradblog.com uh, I, I, you know, I really enjoyed that conversation With uh, Scott Shackelford I should note And I should, and by the way does I uh, haven't said hello to you So oh. Hi Desi Doyen Hi <laughs> How are you? I'm good um, <laughs> I was so excited to get to uh, Shackelford there I didn't even get to say hi At the top of the show uh, You know, I, I don't I- agree with everything That he had to say in uh, in regards to our voting system specifically. Now, he's a cybersecurity expert. He's not an electronic voting machine expert necessarily. Uh, so I want to point out just very quickly a couple of uh, issues here. One, he was talking about uh, direct recording electronic machines. That's a DREs or usually touchscreens. Um, he said they were used in five states. They're actually used in many more states than that. Uh, five states, I think, use them exclusively, but uh, more states use them with and without the so-called paper trails. Either way, whether they have the paper trails or not, they are just as unverifiable. If you're voting on a touchscreen machine, as I've argued many years, it is a 100 percent unverifiable vote. There is no way to know if your vote was ever recorded accurately uh, or anybody's vote was recorded accurately on one of those systems as per the voter intent after an election. Yeah, I think that,
3: that's got to be something that's really clear to people, is that yes, you know, you may see no problem when you are actually recording your vote, but you can't know that it was recorded. Yeah. And people going back in later trying to conduct some kind of recount, even if they have that paper trail to look at afterwards, it's meaningless. they can't tell that that is what you chose to do. The right. computer could have changed it and printed out something entirely different.
1: Paper are meaningless. They never actually bothered to count them. But if they did, uh, you know, they've been shown by computer scientists, the uh, UC Santa Barbara uh, computer security group back here a few years ago out here in California during uh, then Secretary of State Deborah Bowen's top to bottom review of every electronic voting system used in California at the time. Found that, yeah, even the touchscreen systems with the so-called paper trails can be gamed in such a way that even if you did bother to count those paper trails, you wouldn't be able to see the hack. So, um, you know, just trying to figure out what it will, will take to implement a system that voters can actually have confidence in because... You know, they need to be able to oversee the results in order to know that the the, the results actually reflect their intent. And every single time, for me anyway, comes back to hand counted, hand marked paper ballots, at, publicly counted at the precinct um, with results posted then and there before the before the ballots are moved anywhere. I'd love to find a different way to do it that the public could have more confidence in. But in all of these years looking, I haven't found it. So if you care about elections, if you think that's important, uh, you know, I would suggest, uh, you know, trying to move forward with hand counted paper ballot pilot programs around the country, sort of modeled on what they do on on towns in New Hampshire, where, yes, their results are, are are actually completed before. The uh, D-Bold Optical Scan Counties uh, towns up there in New Hampshire in, in many cases. So, uh, you know, love to find a different way, but I'm not aware of one. Uh, in the meantime, when it comes to, uh, you know, cybersecurity experts and uh, cryptography experts, uh, saw a tweet just before going on air today from uh, Matthew Green, who's uh regarded as one of the world's leading cryptography experts. He knows about, you know, cybersecurity and how to make sure votes uh, uh, or how to make sure anything uh, stays secure online. He teaches cryptography at Johns Hopkins. He had tweeted yesterday, quote, There is only one way to protect the voting system from a nation state funded cyber attack. Use paper. (laughs) Mm hmm. That's what Matthew Green has to say. Uh, In the meantime, getting back to voting rights, Ari Berman uh, reminds us today that uh, the uh, bodies of civil rights activists, Andrew Goodman, James Earl Cheney, Michael Henry Schwerner, were found 52 years ago today after they were murdered by the KKK in Mississippi during Freedom Summer in 1964 trying to uh, they were murdered for trying to help register voters there that's all they were doing uh, that was uh, about a hundred years after African Americans were actually given the right to vote but still there was just a tiny percentage I think it's something like six percent of eligible voters uh, in Mississippi back in 1964 were actually registered to vote at the time thanks to Jim Crow laws thanks to uh, people trying to make sure that uh, those folks did not participate in the franchise. So they were killed. They gave their lives, those three, trying to, you know, help people exercise their right to vote. That was 52 years ago uh, uh, today, and this week is, as I said, the 51st anniversary of the Voting Rights Act signed by Lyndon Johnson about one year after those murders and, and after the bloody Sunday march in Selma, Alabama, where John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis, still serving Congressman John Lewis, got the crap beaten out of him, simply trying to walk across the, across the Edmund Pettus Bridge from Selma to Montgomery, fighting for, once again, for the right to vote. Um, Just one of the many reasons that, uh, you know, along with uh, Americans who have have given their lives all over the world, supposedly uh, defending democracy, just one of the reasons that I get so crazy when people are so cavalier about votes, about voting rights, about uh, exercising that hard-won right, Uh, And then about, you know, taking measures to ensure that when people do manage to vote, that their votes are actually counted as cast and in a way that they can know they've been counted as cast. So this thing is not this is not a political thing for me. This is a rights thing for me. And it it remains the vote does. It remains just about the basis for everything that happens in this country and subsequently everything that happens around the world and the bargain. So, yes, it matters. Um, following one of our uh, recent reports this week, uh, we've talk, been talking a lot about voting this week. I suspect we will continue uh, at least at least through November, and at least until the Supreme Court decides uh, who the next president will be in <laughs> oh, January or so. <laughs> In any event, uh, listener Emil Sorensen uh, from Denmark, I believe, uh, one of my favorite listeners, he, he's a great uh, he tweets as Sorenzo uh, and, and he uh, tweets great stuff to uh, to me at the Brad blog, where you can tweet to me as well, says that uh, it, it tweets today. People who say their vote doesn't matter have to explain why the Democrats and Republicans are so desperate to get it. To get those votes. He says they lie, they cheat, they steal, they take bribes, they browbeat journalists and political figures all to get more votes or to restrict voting. He adds, to be sure, elections aren't free and fair and make too little difference, but the parties obviously think your votes count. They do indeed. Um, <laughs> they wouldn't work so hard for them and for the money it takes to win them and everything else. So they think it counts. So when I hear people say, oh, I'm not going to vote, the, both parties are the same. They don't make any difference. Are you kidding me? A, there's more than just two parties. Uh, but the, man, when you look at the people who died for this right. Yes, you uh, no, I was going to uh, say, yeah. it's
3: not just a rights thing for you. And I think for me, too, it's a patriot thing. It's an American thing. Well, listen, it's this is what separates us and makes us patriots because we believe in America and the promise of America. And that is a fundamental component of the promise of America.
1: But yeah, but that uh, that presumes that there's something special about America. It's not about America. It's not about the U.S. It's not about American exceptionalism. It's about democracy. It's about democracy. It's about taking part in the the civilization in which you live so you can check out and have, you know, no real uh, direct say over it Um, or not. You know, it's just it's not about America, really, to me. I I meant more as 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 an
3: American. I care about my country and I want. To participate in my country and support the rights. of Well, you
1: would because you hate the rest of the world. So let me just get that out of the way. Now, with that, with that said uh, about, uh, you know, the right to vote and uh, the idea of not voting. Uh, Keith Ellison, congressman from uh, Minnesota, Democrat from Minnesota. Uh, I believe he's one of the first Muslims or maybe the only Muslim right now to be serving in the U.S. House. He was a representative for Bernie Sanders on the Democratic Platform Committee. He was a fierce supporter of Sanders. Uh, And uh, he served on the Platform Committee, which, yes, did produce the most progressive Democratic platform in history. Progressive enough? Some people say no, but it is the most progressive in history. It is uh, moving the party in the right direction. Keith Ellison was uh, speaking at the Democratic National Convention. He talked about uh, uh, voting. I think it was the first day of the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. He offered these remarks to his fellow Sanders supporters about the Republicans' very real and very well-documented fight in recent years against that long uh, and and hard-won right to vote in America.
0: They don't want us to vote! They want to push voter ID laws that block black and Latino voters. Paul Ryan won't even allow a vote to restore the Voting Rights Act. You know, we must push back. Not voting is not a protest. It is a surrender.
1: Yeah. It sure is. Keith Ellison, uh, not voting is not a protest. It's a surrender. I hear people say, you know, oh, don't vote. What is it? George Carlin, I think. Great line. Don't vote. It only encourages them. I think that was George Carlin. Uh, And people who think, uh, you know, if they somehow, if they boycott the election, they're they're making some sort of a statement. You are making no statement by not voting. I guess the only statement you're making is that, um, you know, The candidates simply don't have to worry about your vote. They don't have to worry about stealing your vote, for that matter. They don't have to worry about pleasing you. They can please the people who do bother to vote and the people who do bother to give them obscenely huge amounts of money. But you, they don't care. The majority of people in America already don't vote. So I'm not sure what statement it is you think you're making by not voting. Again, uh, vote... Don't have to vote for either of the two Republic, uh, the Republican or Democratic parties. Vote for who, whoever you like. But if you check out of the process, uh, then your government will continue to check out on you even more than they do already. Um, all right. One more uh, piece of election news. Uh, this back to the horse race uh, before we get out of this uh, segment. The, um, the the from Fox News, Fox News. The Clinton-Cain ticket now leads the Trump-Pence ticket by 10 points, 49 to 39. Uh, In the race for the White House, Clinton's advantage is now outside of the poll's margin of error. The Democrat is now said to be winning, according to Fox News, uh, winning among the so-called Obama coalition, favored among women, among blacks, among Hispanics and voters under 30 leading among voters under 30 by 18 points. Um, And those numbers, they say, rival Barack Obama's performance among those same groups against Mitt Romney, who I should add lost back in 2012. So she's doing as well or better in many of those categories. Uh, Twelve percent of Republicans now back Hillary Clinton, according to Fox News. That's more than double the number of Democrats who support Donald Trump That number's at five percent. Independents, however, are still going in a pretty big way for Donald Trump. Incredibly enough, forty-one to thirty-three percent. In twenty twelve, independents went for Romney by uh, just five points. Now uh, they're going by uh, almost uh, well, almost ten points, about eight points. Clinton, more Clinton supporters say their vote is for her now rather than against Trump, just barely by two points. Among Trump supporters, a majority say their vote is better described as being against Clinton. That's 52 percent. A majority of uh, uh, voters for Trump say they're actually voting against Clinton. But even at Fox News, 65 percent say that that Clinton is uh, qualified to be president, 65 percent. But only 43 percent say that about Donald Trump. (laughs) <laughs> Remarkably, 58% feel he isn't qualified, including 45% who say, quote, not at all qualified, according to this Fox News poll. Huge majority say that uh, Hillary Clinton has the temperament to be president, but just 37% say that about Donald Trump. Uh, finally here, before we go to the break, uh, 77% of voters are are familiar with the exchange that happened between Donald Trump and the parents of the Muslim American soldier who died while serving in Iraq back in 2004 and Donald Trump's attack on them, essentially, some 69 percent of uh, folks in this Fox News poll describe Trump's criticism of the Khan family as out of bounds. We've heard a lot of reports about Donald Trump's campaign now imploding. I will believe it when I see it, but when it comes to the uh, when it comes to the numbers, things are not looking good for Donald Trump. But you know what? It takes one terrorist attack somewhere around the world, here in America, or anywhere else, for things to change in a New York minute. So. Um, any of you Democrats or Hillary Clinton supporters out there who are resting on your laurels, uh, I would think twice about that. Okay, quick break, and we're back with more broadcasts right after this, with some mercifully non-election news. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time only contribution. Certainly, is raining again in in Phoenix, boy howdy! So much rainfall and has fallen uh, earlier this week, up to two inches in one hour in central Phoenix. That the National Weather Service was referring to the storm once again. This will sound familiar to you, Desi. A 100-year event. Oh, wow! We have a lot of those, don't we, lately? Oh
3: yes, we have a lot more than we used to. Actually, scientifically proven.
1: Oh, you and your science. Was it earlier? uh, Our one of our Green News reports earlier this week was it up in Wisconsin?
3: It was Ellicott, Maryland. Maryland that had the one in one thousand year storm.
1: Oh, okay. So. Uh, just, uh, you know, amazing when we do, do talk about elections, the idea that uh, how important this election is and the difference between where this planet is headed based on who wins and who doesn't this November is just remarkable. And one of those people up for reelection this year is uh, Senator Ron Johnson, Republican out of Wisconsin. He's running against um, Senator, former Senator Russ Feingold, one of the finest progressives Indeed. to have served in the U.S. Senate, he was uh, unseated by Johnson. Uh, what six years ago? Now he wants his seat back. Uh, Johnson was uh, on some radio show, some right-wing radio show, uh, the Glenn Klein show, uh, and the what is this? The the issue of uh, climate change came up, and man, these. Climate change deniers, these zombie lies, these myths—they never die, no matter how disproven they are. So here's Ron Johnson, a U.S. senator up for re-election, talking about talking about what he believes is actually going on concerning climate change.
0: The, the climate hasn't warmed in quite a few years. I mean, that, that's that is proven scientifically. Nope. So <laughs> that's why they've changed the, the terminology from global warming to climate change. Right. No, that nope. covers everything. <laughs> uh, the climate Pause. has always changed. It always will. But uh, you know, the whole climate change debate gives, and they've been, there are all kinds of quotes from adherents of uh, and promoters of climate change. The reason they're doing it is it's just such a great opportunity to control, you know, pretty much government, but <laughs> <Nope>. control your <laughs> lives. But I mean, again, I don't know why they want to do it. There, there's an arrogance of power there. They're, they're utopians. Oh, they really man. think they can create heaven on earth, and, and where it's failed in the past, those people like Stalin and Chavez and the Castros, the, the, the nutcases in North Korea. By the way, if you want equal results, you'll go to North Korea. You have equal misery.
1: Uh, by the way, if you want nutcases... <laughs> There's Ron Johnson. Uh, so, very quickly, we've got one minute. What would you like to say to uh, Senator Johnson? Does I would like <laughs> to
3: say that Ron Johnson is absolutely completely wrong. And if you listen to the entire clip, you can hear him toss out even more myths about global warming. None of the things that he has said are true. It's
1: not getting cooler.
3: It's not getting cooler. And if you don't understand what the actual threats are, you are going to be unable to prepare for them and unable to protect your constituents.
1: So we're now uh, in our third year of the hottest year ever recorded on planet Earth, amongst other things. But to Ron Johnson, it's actually getting cooler. And because of that, you people, Desi Doyen, have changed uh, global warming to... The word to the phrase climate change,
3: which is of course untrue.
1: Funny thing about that, uh, the I the UN's IPCC, uh, which puts out these reports year after year, finding that it's getting warmer and warmer. Do you remember? I, I what year was the IPCC? 1988. Founded? 1988, IPCC was founded. What does the IPCC stand for, Desi Doyen?
3: Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change.
1: What I thought they just changed it from global warming to climate change, but back in 1988, they were already calling it climate change yeah imagine that brother we got to get out uh you're welcome for all the facts uh listeners glad you could join us for them my thanks to our producer desi Doy and to our guest today scott shackleford of the university of indiana and for you for spending a portion of your day or night with us hope you enjoyed it if you missed any portion of today download it as uh all of our shows uh, for free at bradblog.com or over on itunes where Your good review helps other people find what we do here as well. So it's appreciated. Thanks in advance. Drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com, even if you don't agree with me. And you can find and follow me on the Facebooks and the Twitters, where many people don't agree with me. Uh, I am the Bradblog over there. All right. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.